Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Welcome to Great Minds, the wine-centric podcast that looks beyond the beautiful liquid in the glass to the much more interesting world of the people that make it happen, as well as the culture and history of what is in that glass. I'm Julie Glenn. And I'm Gina Birch. You know, the best way to learn about wines is to taste them, something that we do a lot of at Great Minds in studio, at wine shops, actually wherever we can find them. So that being said, Julie and I went to what I'm going to call the mother load of tastings when we attended the Wine Spectator Grand Tour in Miami recently. Kind of reminded me of The Rock just now. When I did the mother load? The mother load. Can you smell what Gina... Oh, yeah, I can't tasting. raise my eyebrow like him. You know, I, I know can you do the can. Bra- I got The Rock brow. Do it. But you got the voice. See? Okay. It's so how there. are we going to merge the two? We'll have to do one of those programs. <laughs> you know what? Anyway. <laughs> so Wine Spectator has three tours each spring. This year in Vegas, Chicago, and Miami. Each event features 250 wines that have scored 90 points or more by the magazine. And then the big daddy of the tasting events is in New York in October at the New York Wine Experience. So we've been to a lot of tastings. And what set this one apart, besides the sheer number of wines, is that each winery only pours one selection at their table. Of course, as Julie said, they're all 90-point wines. And the winery owners, winemakers, or a principal player uh, is typically at one of the, is one of the ones who are doing the pouring. Um, and it was, it was exciting for me. And at the end, I was disappointed because I think we were only able to try like a sixth of the wines that were presented. And there were people from the wineries that really wanted to stop by and say hi to. There were wines I really wanted to stop by and that I haven't tried yet. And neither one of us, we, we just couldn't get to them all. It was I impossible. Was, I was I totally blew my palate budget um, <laughs> on the whites and the sparklings. Yeah. And by the time I sauntered on over to the reds, and we got separated at one point and I couldn't find it. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. I'll, just, I'll just try stuff. I was in a section, and it was wines that were, I mean, of course, none of them were really bad. I mean, they mm-hmm. were all 90-plus points and yep. evaluated by wine spectator tasters who are not your, you know. Your average Joe. Not They have uh, pretty much better palates than most. but mm-hmm. So they, they were all good, but I, I kept on trying these things, and I was trying different reds, and I was just like, eh. I'm I'm done because oh, I, I had all the white and mm-hmm. I got to try almost all of the things that I really really wanted to try, but there were in the red category there were things that I really wanted to try and compare and contrast that yeah. I did not get to, and I was really kind of disappointed in myself. I got to well, be honest. And, I, and I, you get, <laughs> I was disappointed in you too. No, we're <laughs> just kidding. You get stuck on one aisle and you start talking to people and you forget. I mean, because this was massive. It was in a big ballroom at the Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau and. And it was just so much ground to cover, and I well, just... And I'm not good at math, but you got 250 wines mm-hmm. with 250 producers or winery principals mm-hmm. or people who really know what they're talking about, about said wines. Yes. And the entire event, we got there, The we got for the VIP part. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. It lasted till nine. That's yeah. three hours. That's... Hold, please. I'm going to do math in my head. So <sighs> you have 180 minutes and a 250 wines. It's impossible. So even if you did a wine a minute, you're not going to get to all of them, Mm -mm. no matter what. So you just had to really plan it out, 
look at the wines ahead of time and just try to do a surgical strike, if you will, to get to what you make sure that you really, really want to try. And Wine Spectator knows that because they publish the wines and the winemakers and the reads. They publish it in advance, and they do it in a great way where you can look at the regions, you look at the specific wines that are going to be there. And so we check that out in advance to know what was being poured, and and we still... um, it was still tough for us to get them all. But I know one of the, the things that we both decided on uh, that we wanted to target was there was only one wine from Greece, and it was made from a grape that everybody had thought was extinct. It's called Malagusia. Malagusia. So Malagusia. And I know I like Greek wines for mm-hmm. the most part. I haven't really met one I don't like. Have you? Uh, yes. I've met a red or two yes. that I don't and, like. But and, the and, whites for overall love. Mm-hmm. But some of the reds are great. So no, I not agree. to disparage mm-hmm. the reds from Greece. But it's, it's a different you know, palette. But I was really excited to try uh, this white from Greece. And fortunately, the way that the event was laid out, you walk in and there's a giant map. And it kind of right. tells you, here's where this is. There was a whole like row of sparkling. And then the whites were kind of concentrated here. And you had some you know, South American varieties or wineries mm-hmm. in one area. And then you got it – was, it was really well laid out. So you – well, you and can the still Chardonnays get lost, in one area. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to say you couldn't get lost, but because we um, did, because I totally did, mm-hmm. I so did. I didn't even eat a bite of food the whole time. I, I, I didn't even realize it was there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I saw like cookies at the end. And I'm like, oh, maybe oh. I should take one of these for the yeah. ride home. Um, anyway, so we made our way over to the Greek person, which mm-hmm. was great, and the name here it is. You do it, T- Katima. Yero, mm-hmm. Yero, because the G is yeah, yeah. the year. Yero Vasilou, mm-hmm. Malagusia, Eponomi, Single Vineyard, got those two words, 2016. <laughs> it got 91 points. It was a white wine. Again, this grape was almost no longer existing, and it was brought back to life. So therefore, of course, you have to try something that was right. saved from the brink of extinction. So to get the right pronunciation and the lowdown on all of it, we actually spoke to Frankie Saunders. She's an ambassador for the wine, and she's going to tell us all about the grape, its history, and a lot more. One of our top producers is Evangelo Yerovasiliu, is the name of the winemaker. It's uh, Katima. Katima? 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 Yeah, you can say Katima. Katima? It's the last name of the wine. Yerovasiliu. Yeah, with a with with a with a Y. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Tima means chateau or domain. Uh, it's a domain Jero Basilio, and he's very well known for this specific grape varietal Malagusia, because back in the seventies, when he was working at Porto Carras in the Pirio uh, slopes of Meliton, he uh, he was an assistant winemaker. And between him and his professor, they uh, found this grape varietal Malagusia that they thought it was extinct, and they revived the entire grape varietal when he brought the uh, vines to his winery in 1981. That's when he founded the uh, the winery, Jero Basilio. Where in Greece? This is in Thessaloniki, in PGI Epanomi. It will be PGI Epanomi, which is northern Greece and Macedonia. It's a coastal, closer to the ocean, so. Okay, so this grape was near extinction. Near extinction in the Why 70s. Uh, a, a lot of indigenous grape rattles in Greece were almost extinct, because there was a lot of plantings everywhere. Um, he found the grape varietal, like I said, and he replanted the grape varietals, and there's a lot of producers now in Greece producing Malagusia. Um, but he is known to be the king, and he's known to be the one who actually found this grape varietal. Now he has a very nice winery with uh, actually the second largest uh, wine key museum in the world. Well, I wonder about, there's another one at the um, Culinary Institute of America in Greystone. Yes, the uh, wine key. They thing. have a ton of them up there. Explain this grape to us. So uh, 
it's a white grape variety. It's indigenous to Greece. Uh, I would say it has the weight of a Chardonnay, the notes of a Muscat, and the acidity of a Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's, yeah. uh, it's <laughs> very aromatic. It's very, very oh, aromatic. I Greek, love that. Uh, yes, Greek wines, especially white wines, are very known to be very aromatic wines. Uh, that's why they're so different from the rest of the world. And there's actually a huge market for Greek, Greek wines here in South Florida now. It's coming down here. It's big in New York. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants in New York uh, buying Greek wine. Yeah, and where is the biggest market in the U.S. I, for Greek wines? I would say New York and in Chicago at the moment. It's coming to Flo- it's coming to Florida. There is yeah, California and Las Vegas as well. Uh, Milos happens to have a few restaurants around the world. So Canada, actually, I will tell you our biggest uh, ex- uh, our markets for Greek wine. We starting with Germany, number one, the USA, Canada, UK, France, and Cyprus. Those are your top markets for Greek wines at the Cyprus. moment. Yes, Cyprus. And they uh, Greece exports about 13% of their wine into these uh, markets. Really? So the rest of it they consume there domestically? Yeah, they consume a lot of wine domestically, yes. I love the Greek people. I, of course, Opa. I love it. Yeah, Opa, yeah. yeah, we say yamas. Uh, yamas. Yamas means yamas. cheers, yes. Do we yes. have to throw things and break plates now? Uh, no, maybe just uh, paper napkins oh, everywhere. Okay. That's yeah, how we that's celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. If, uh, if you get a hand on Asirtico, Asirtico is another great varietal that is hot right now. Uh, yes, Vilana and Viriano from Crete, from Crete. Those are coming out as well. Those are the those are going to get pretty hot too. So that's another region in Greece that you might want to look at. Um, and how would you compare this 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 particular grape to Asirtico as far as how are they different? Yes, well, Asirtico is very very different. It comes to, there's Asirtico everywhere in Greece. You can find Asirtico in Macedonia, but Asirtico from Santorini, the island itself. It's a volcanic. That's the one that I think a lot of people really know. Exactly, Santorini is known to have a volcanic soil. Uh, it's very hard to grow any thing in Santorini so the Asirtico uh, they, they actually they say the oldest the oldest uh, vine root system exists in Santorini and in Crete and it dates back to 3500 years ago the oldest living rootstock ever recorded I think is about 400 500 years old and uh, the one one of the wines that we uh, actually produce from Santorini is a Canavaxi Su by Tselepos it's a hundred year old vines wow. so if you want to, if you want to describe Asirtico, Asirtico is a grape variety, it's a white grape variety. It has a lot, it's high acidity, high minerality. It's almost like drinking stones. Uh, you think about a hundred-year-old vine. What were we doing a hundred years ago? We we're getting ready to go into World War One, right? <laughs> Don't ask me that. You're the history gal. But I love how those those vines grow, like yes. in little nests yes, they in the like ground. It, it is, so yeah. Cool. yeah, it is so cool. Uh, it's actually they're on grafted vines. They're on grafted because uh, um, Phylloxera cannot live. In that soil, because you need at least five percent clay for uh, for uh, for that louse to yeah. basically live. So they grow in what they call a pulura or a stefani, and they actually have people that dress this this uh, this bush vines. Yeah. And the purpose of the pulura is to protect the vine, the uh, grapes, because there's small clusters. I mean, all vines from the wind, all the the debris that is scary, the volcanic, the stones, so they don't break the grape skins. It protects from the sun, and it also uh, collects a little bit of moisture for for the grapes. Like a little bowl. Exactly. Yeah, like, it's like a little yeah. nest. It's like a, a, nest. a, it's a little bit nest. I just want to curl up inside it. I know. I could imagine like wildlife probably. Yeah. But um, well, like I said, it's a high, uh, a lot of structure. It's the red of whites for a Sirtico, a lot of minerality and uh, a lot of acidity. And if you go to other parts uh, of Greece, it's going to be a little more fruit forward, a Sirtico. But a Sirtico stays with that quality, high acid, high minerality, and, uh, and a lot of structure. So if you get a hand on a Sirtico, please do so because... 
Is that hot grape? And is that hot region? So, yeah, after tasting it, the way she described it as far as the weight of a Chardonnay and the nose of a Muscat and the acidity of a Sauvignon Blanc, that was totally straight on. Yeah, it's kind of like the best of all worlds. Yeah. You know? It's um, a really lovely wine. I remember really liking it, and I remember us thinking I would really like to have some seafood with that. Mm-hmm. I, and this has been a little while ago, you know? And mm-hmm. I still remember that that was really good. I love that wine. So we also hooked up with Harry Sexton from Giant Steps in Australia. It's a family winery spearheaded by his father, Phil. Uh, Makes great Pinot Noir and Syrah, but he was pouring the 2017 Yarra Valley Chardonnay. That one got 92 points, and he told us how his family started in the winery, and that was back in 1998. And that year, Julie found particularly interesting. It was kind of a tough time to decide to launch a winery in Australia, because the... Yarra Valley, too. Right? Absolutely. So that's quite um, a risk, you know? Did you decide to just do it? Did your parents decide to do, it, do things different? Aussies yeah. are always crazy, so, though, right? They're awesome. In a, in a good way. I love it. Yes. Sorry. So my, my father uh, actually had a vineyard and a winery based in Western Australia, down in Margaret River. Uh, um, and he, he loved the region, thought it was brilliant, made some amazing wines, but was kind of noticing that the Yarra Valley was doing some things that he could see progressing to an incredible level Um, and so I mean the name Giant Steps comes from a couple things one a incredibly famous John Coltrane jazz album called Giant Steps Uh, my dad's a pretty well-known jazz fan Uh, and secondly the Giant Step from Margaret River to the Yarra Valley in Victoria so yeah I mean look it was tough Uh, we we pulled out a, a paddock to plant a vineyard uh, went from scratch. It took three years to make anything that was even remotely good, and and you know some people would argue fifteen to start making some brilliant <laughs> wines. Um, but you know we persevered, and now we've got some sites around the Yarra Valley that are just incredible and doing some amazing wines. Let's talk about Chardonnay in Australia because a lot of people are still stuck on the Shiraz, yes. you know. So let's yes. tell tell us about this grape and how it's evolved for you guys yeah absolutely so the I mean the Yarra Valley is one of the cooler regions in Australia um, until you get to Tasmania it's probably the coolest um, Tasmania is pretty awesome though Tasmania is beautiful yeah. uh, and we, we actually make a pinot from Tasmania you do yeah we, oh, ship, man. we ship the fruit across on the boat overnight and make it in our own so winery great but because it's such a cool region and because we've got soils that are dating back 450 million years um, they're very lean they're making very tight wines um, but along with our sunshine that we get in Australia we can make incredible fruit um, that really brings a ripeness to the wines that's balanced out with that minerality that you're getting from those old volcanic soils I almost smell like some pineapple some tropical fruit in here I haven't tasted it yet I'm smelling it but I smell like um, some really that's, ripe that pineapple is our that is our sun bringing incredible ripeness. Yes. Um, but that is balanced out by that minerality and that kind of citrus peel uh, acidity that we've got running through the wine. That's a lovely... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. This is a really good... You know what I'm saying? Chardonnay. So what, what, what else is within the range? I mean, I know you have the Chardonnay here today, but what else is in... Um, so we believe that the Yarra Valley is a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay region. Um, Are you the only people that believe that, or does everybody know? <laughs> no, no, everybody believes it, but everybody likes to play around with Sangiovese and Syrah, and I mean, we honestly do some Syrah and a Cabernet 
uh, Merlot Petit Verdot blend as well. You don't normally think of these being wines that like want to play in the same playground. Syrah and Pinot Noir in the same place. You know that just doesn't occur to many. No, it doesn't. But I think that stems from France, of course, because they like to spread them out, keep everybody in their own little playpen. Um, (laughs) And, I mean, on our first vineyard that we planted, we've got three faces, a a north, east, and a west face. So we've got just a huge amount of temperature to play with there. Um, Variation is significant enough to to be able to do something. Yeah, absolutely. So Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Rules, what? Yeah, we don't play. Um, (laughs) And and how is the uh, the market in the U.S.? I mean, have you finally found your footing again? Because, you know, there was that hole where it was like awesome and then it completely died and then it's kind of resurrected and... Where are, you, where are you finding it? It's erected in like quality land, hasn't That's it? it? Absolutely, like, exactly. yeah. I, I think the quality from Australia has always struggled a little bit here in the States. Um, but we are definitely picking up traction. We've got, I mean, this wine sits a little close to natural. So, we, you know, we're not adding too much sulfur. Uh, it's all wild ferment for this Chardonnay. Uh, and that really helps keep the traction with the, the younger generation as well, who are really looking for those kind of wines. Um, and... I mean, I think Americans like to explore much more now so than ever. So, Well, and we're so lucky that we get all of these, everything imported, because we can go all over the world in, in one walk down the, uh, the aisle in the grocery store. Yeah, and, and people want to be here too, so I reckon you're getting pretty good prices. Ah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. How have people been receiving the wine uh, on the tour? Oh, brilliantly, brilliantly. Um, I don't, I don't see a lot of people who have heard of us before, um, and the ones who do always seek us out because, you know, they get to look at me. No. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the people I'm introducing to our wines are very, very receptive. They, they love the freshness. They love the, the brightness in the wine. You know, Gina, when we got back from this event, I was showing my daughter Ariana pictures of the winemakers that we met mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. I was just so... I was totally excited for like a whole nother week after yeah. this and showing pictures to everybody. So I was showing Ariana pictures and she goes, wait, 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 who's that? <laughs> and I go back to the picture of Harry Sexton and, and, and us with this Chardonnay. And she was like, mommy, he's, he's a winemaker. He's pretty young. I'm like, he's such a young guy. And he photographs younger than he actually is, but uh-huh. his voice and his knowledge of the product that his parents and he are working with and his representation of the winery, mm-hmm. very mature, very knowledgeable, and just, just a really, really cool kid. A nice guy. I thought she was going to say, oh, he's cute. Is he in a boy band? <laughs> no, she did. he could have totally be a boy band material, mm. but he was super, super smart, very mature, and a really wonderful guy. Yeah. And of course, somehow, I don't know how, we managed to find ourselves in the sparkling aisle for a little extra time. This was a huge lane, and I was so excited to be there. There were giants there, like Lanson, Collet, I mean, just beautiful champagnes I could go on and on. They had some from our friend Gerard Bertrand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They did, um, but you were loving that Collet, I remember. Was... Oh, I love that Collet. And, and the representative from that, he's such a nice guy. Pascal? He's so He's great. a funny guy, yeah. And you can recognize him from across the mm-hmm. room. Of course, we all know my propensity for all things Italian, especially anything from Trentino Alto Adige, mm-hmm. so I beelined to try the Ferrari Trento Extra Brut Perle Negro Vintage 2008. It scored 91 points. And that garnered this wine an invite to this exclusive tasting. And we talked with Ferrari Trento's brand ambassador, Jamie Alexander Stewart. He began where every good story should, talking about the founder of the winery, who was a bit of a pioneer in the region and in the country when it comes to wine, Giulio Ferrari. 
He was a viticulturalist located in Trento in the late 1800s. He had amassed an enormous uh, intellectual acumen for grape culture. Um, he had developed a nursery unparalleled at the time with not just indigenous grape cultures, but also international varieties. So when families like the, Mar the Marchese d'Antonori's family wanted to start experimenting with Baudelaire's varietals, they consulted with Giulio Ferrari. He hand-planted Tignanello with Cabernet and Merlot from his own nursery. So he was drawn to France to study there with the French, mainly because of the grape cultures that were there that weren't known in Italy at the time. He studied in Montpellier and then did stage work in Champagne, where he fell in love with Chardonnay as a grape. And in 1897, he smuggled the first vines of Chardonnay from Ai in Champagne back to northern Italy and planted them in Italian soil for the first time. Technically, we were part of Austria, but the heart of people was, was Italian. Um, so he established Method Champenois production in 1902 in Trento under the name of Ferrari. Um, and as a progenitor of the movement, he has become celebrated for that, that acumen, that vision. Um, today, there's more than 3,000 producers of Metodo Classico, which is the Italian term for Method Champenois, in the entire country, and two designated regions. Trentodoc was the first, and then obviously Franciacorta. Um, Italy is a country that is somewhat hegemonic in their drinking tastes. You know, there's, uh, they're a bitchy bunch of principalities that don't drink each other's wine and eat each other's food. Ferrari has really established itself through an altruistic approach to um, marketing, which is getting people to drink their wines as the most celebrated producer in the country. So in every, every day in Italy, our non-vintage Blanc de Blanc is 40% of market share. Four out of every, every 10 bottles or glasses of anything of the bubble in the entire country is made by the Lunelli family in Trento under the, the label of Ferrari. It's historically incredibly strong within the Italian consumer base. So interesting because um, as far as exports are concerned, it seems like the big, you know, plow horse is Prosecco yes. as far as sparkling. Yes. And then Franciacorta as far as name recognition as a sparkling wine from Italy. What happened? Like how come nobody knows about it? If you look at it from a position of communications versus a position of consumption, there's a, there's a dramatic difference. First of all, Prosecco has become courageously strong in America, not because Americans prefer off-dry things, but because this has always been a sparkling wine consumer culture, and Champagne has never preferred a style and an economic uh, rationale that allows people to drink Champagne on a daily basis. Yeah. Prosecco is the first sparkling wine that everybody can drink on a daily basis. And afford it. Yeah. And afford it that's right. Um, and as an aperitivo and just as a celebratory lifestyle style of wine, it's fantastic. We own Bissol, which is the original producer um, of Prosecco. I think, I think we've all had that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. Right? it's quite remarkable. Ferrari in the United States, as a single brand, is stronger distribution-wise than all of French Accord. Ferrari is in the US. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We're the official sparkling wine of the Emmys, um, and that was a choice of the Television Academy. The brand is incredibly clean and articulate here, and we've positioned ourselves remarkably well. We're about 80% on-premise, 15 to 20% independent retail, no mass market, no chain, no grocery. We've really gone door-to-door -to, -door to develop the, a narrative of understanding about the fact that it, Italy's not just capable of making good sparkling wine, but on a level that's an equivalency qualitatively with the French. Um, really, the, the most important moment for us was when we won not just Producer of the Year, but World Champion Blanc de Blanc at the International Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championships. It's the largest champagne competition on earth, Ordinarily, it's the scraps of the table that are fed to the non-French producers, but we vanquished 900 French producers in open competition and one producer of the year twice. Uh, and it's governed by people that are true Francophiles that love champagne.
as a as so it was kind of like your um, it was our judgment of Paris. Judgment. Yeah, that's yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. That so, mind reading. Thing. Don't don't read anymore because no, they no, could no, get really no. dangerous in there. No, <laughs> uh, no look, spark- true story. <laughs> sparkling wine consumption in the United States is aspirational. There's an older generation, older millennials and beyond, that still cling to certain labels. Um, as yeah, brand loyalty is a big deal here. Yes, but I think with sparkling wine, you're seeing a lot of people that are aspirationally galvanized by the quality of the experience rather than just the label. So one of the things that you brought up, and, and you know, one of the marketing themes is Franciacorta is the champagne of Italy because it's Mitho Cepanoise, same kind of like trying to be in the same style, but that's not what this wine is about. No. I mean, look, we owe a kinship to champagne because our founder was moved emotionally by champagne in order to embrace the tenets, the style, and the quality of it. But we've never sought to reconcile ourselves as being champagne. We're Italian. Why would we? And I have to say, he had the coolest cufflinks on. They were a direwolf sigil from the House Stark for Game of Thrones. It's so cool. It was great. And I took a picture of him. And by the way, if you notice that his accent was not Italian, that's because he's from New Zealand. And that's how we do the interviews. We get all the info. Mm-hmm. Oh, including the fact that he's a former rugby player. <laughs> we know it all. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't the only sparkler from Italy that we had to try. The top tier bubbly in Italy includes the sparkling from Alto Adige, but also the more famous Frenchia Corta. So I had to drag you down to the other end of the, the aisle, the bustling aisle. I had to elbow through, maybe stop once or twice along the way, but we really wanted to talk to Cadal Bosco. Yeah, I was really happy that you uh, muscled me away from Alto Adige and, you know, we tripped up along the way and tried just a few champagnes. Um, so, Lanson. Yeah, twice. yeah, Lanson. Yeah, I did try that twice, I'll be honest. But I'm not counting. I know. I, I couldn't count. We tried yeah. to count later. Um, so we went down this fabulous rosé. It's a great conversation with a man whose first vintage of Lombardy's sparkling jewel of a wine was released in 1972. The Caudal Bosco Rosé, Franciacorta Cuvée Prestige, non-vintage, 91 points. That was what was being poured, and it was delicious. Mm-hmm. We talked with the founder, Maurizio Zanella, about what moved him to get into the wine business. Why did you decide to do that? For, uh, because I was loving wine. What did you do before? Did you do Nothing. Before? I was 16 years old. So you were oh. very young. Yes. So, so your, family, your family wasn't in the wine business no. either? No. No, okay. no, no. So there you were at 16 years old, going yes. to school, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to start making wine. More or less. <laughs> More or less. And then why this? Because there's, I mean, we're talking Italy, and we're talking so many different grapes, yes. and so many different paths you could take. So why did you go on this path? Because the region where we are, called Francia Corta, was a region that have always a history making bubble wine. And, uh, and Francia Corta, for the knowledge of the consumer, is not a sparkling wine, is not a spumante, is not prosecco, is not champagne. Is the name of the territory, and the name of the wine is Francia Corta. Cadel Bosco is probably one of the most important wineries that start to valorize this appellation. What makes it different? What makes this different? What makes this particular wine yeah. different? Or, or the French Accorta, this wine in particular, the, everything? Well, the, the, the main reason is the territory again, because we are very lucky, very close to the Alps mountain. And uh, these give uh, the grapes the opportunity to be ripe, but with a good acidity, 
in order to make wine that get a second fermentation and uh, with a good uh, freshness but with a lot of power. We don't need, like other appellations, to add uh, sugar when you disgorge. You know that when you disgorge, normally you add uh, a liqueur, and uh, normally the liqueur is between 8-10 grams per liter, and in Franciacorta the average is 4-5, because uh, the wine is already ripe enough in order to be pleasant, and you don't need to get addition of sugar. Can you tell me a little bit about the foundation of Franciacorta as a yeah. sparkling wine region? When did that begin? 61 was the number five DOC in Italy, was the first DOCG for a bubble wine in Italy in the 90, and uh, is uh, probably is, is very important for who listen us, is the most uh, strict rules to produce a sparkling wine in the world. Really? Yes. The, the production of grape for hectare is the lowest. The pressing of the grape when you get the juice is the lowest. Again, 60% can only become wine. And the time of maturation, the aging time on the bottle, minimum is 18 months, where all the other appellation is 12, 9, 15. So it's a very strict law in order to uh, make all the producers go in the direction of quality. How much has that changed, though, since you first got into the business? When you were 16 years old, what kind of rules and restrictions were in place at that point, and how much has that evolved since you started? This is because that was only 10 years ago. We know you're very young. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the only uh, appellation of DOCG that changed the rules five times in order to take the quality slower every time a little higher in order to push all the producer now there are 122 very small is a little burgundy where all the producer that do 10,000 20,000 30,000 bottles they are obliged to follow a certain philosophy by rules that are so strict and these give the rules doesn't means quality but the rules means take the producer to get the culture and the tradition that we don't have because we are, we are very young. And 50 years of tradition is not too much in the quality wine, but thanks to those rules, all the people is obliged to think in one direction, and this makes easier to get this tradition. Can you tell me about the sparkling wine of Franciacorta's place within the um, cuisine of the region from which it comes? Uh, it's a good question because uh, the Italian food, as uh, you know, is uh, very different depending on region. And uh, normally the success now of the sparkling wine in general with various appellations is booming. But sometimes those wines are very fine with no a, lo a lot of uh, after-tasting, long after-tasting, or sometimes too acid or sometimes too sweet. I believe Franciacorta, not because we produce them, but because it's objective, they have a very big power. The wine are more wine than sparkling, and uh, they have no sugar, and that make it very easy to put together with food. What is 
your favorite thing to put with it? Always is uh, fish or shellfish or oyster or I mean the fish is probably the best thing to to put together with. In a regional, is there a regional preparation or a regional style? Well, in the style uh, in the kitchen of the region, we have a lake, so you have the fish from the lake, okay, fresh and uh, we have some um, special ravioli called casoncelli, that is a, a special ravioli very traditional of the region and uh, the wine match perfectly with those wines. I will not speak about red meat of dessert because I believe the red meat and dessert, they need different wine, but all the other food can pair perfectly with Franciacorta, from pasta to white meat, fish, everything, risotto, vegetables, everything, in my opinion, without to put uh, the game the red meat and the sweet. All the other dish also is very good with the raw fish, with the sashimi. That's why Japan is our first market. Really? After Italy. After Italy, is the first export market is Japan. What a great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him and his whole team. I mean, he had a, he had a posse around him. He did. I mean, he, he've only been two or three people, but they were all so genuine and um, and welcoming, and they were really excited about what they were pouring. I mean, you could tell they put their heart and soul into it. They t- and, and, you know, afterwards, I had to go and look up the ravioli that he was talking about, which oh. is from a town near where Franciacorta is. So are you going to make it next time I come over for dinner or have your husband make it? I might. <laughs> and, you know, and this is really where where they are situated is kind of close to where Emilia uh, Romagna's mm-hmm. western edge is, uh, northwestern edge. So um, what they make is this ravioli. It's a semolina-based pasta, which I think I can handle. I just got to find some semolina flour, which yeah. I believe I can I do at the Italian some. market. Mm-hmm. Um, I can make the pasta. The filling includes sausage, meat, cheese, um, eggs, and it has amaretti cookies, which is not surprising mm-hmm. because it's near Amaretto, where mm-hmm. the amaretto comes from. Um, amaretto di... Um, Oh, De Serona. I put that Serono. in my coffee. Serono is the name of the town, so which is where it's famous for the Amaretto di Serona, the Amaretti cookies. So anyway, so they have those little cookies crumbled up in this um, and it and raisins, chopped up mm, golden okay. raisins inside mm-hmm. the filling of this ravioli. And then they make it and then they toss it with butter that's yeah, butter got a little sauce. bit of oh. sage, you know, going on in the butter. So that's what he's talking about pairing with that franciacorta. So totally can taste it right now. Yeah, now when you think about that mm. ravioli, which is the traditional dish of that region near where they make the franciacorta, totally makes sense. Yeah, which is why I always ask these people, "What do you cook in your region that goes with mm-hmm. this?" And especially I Italians. Totally, yeah. Because and like the guy from New Zealand with the awesome direwolf cufflinks said, you have all these little regions that kind of are a little, have some rivalries with one another mm-hmm. and they will not eat each other's food or drink each other's wine and they will stick to their <laughs> thing, which is like, and you go 30 minutes and it's totally different. Yeah. So I love that. And it was great to be able to experience that along one aisle of sparkling wines among the best wines right. in the world. And to kind of sum things up, you know, when I go to events, whether food and wine events or whether it's music events or whatever, at the end of the day, when I look back, I think, would I pay that ticket price to go back next year? Was it worth the price? And I think for this event, it was definitely worth the price. Now, I can't comment on the food because we didn't get any food because we were too that was focused on fault. drinking. And that was our fault. So there was if somebody, if somebody were to, was to say, oh, but the food wasn't good, maybe it was great. It I just good. can't comment on it because I was so geeked out over 
talking to some of our wine friends over the, that we've made over the years who were there. Well, we were working. Let's and we be were honest yes, here. okay, you're right. We were working. Okay. Oh, and starstruck moment. Remember, we turned around from the Greek one and turned around, and there was Larry Stone. You you were dying over Larry Stone. I was losing my mind because I've followed his career for a very long time, and then I finally, and then for some reason, just had not encountered his wine to for try For people it. who don't know Larry Stone. Larry Stone is a master sommelier, um, and he's got a storied career, um, very well respected within the wine world. And uh, like, you know, when I went to school in Italy, one of my teachers was Jancis Robinson for my right. wine course, mm-hmm. which could not be more awesome. But when I was leaving, and I was like, so Jancis... Good friend. Hi, Jancis. What's up? Hey. Um, So who do you think I should contact when I go back to the United States? She said, you need to contact Larry Stone. He's a master sommelier. He's incredible. He's amazing. So I did. Of course, I sent him an email, a totally unsolicited email, which went probably where most unsolicited emails go. Delete. (laughs) (laughs) And when I saw him at this event, it's the first time I've seen him in person and had the guts to actually interact with him. I've been in a room with him, but I was too nervous and intimidated. Believe it or not, it happens. That's crazy. His uh, wine no. was really good, too. Oh, my gosh. His wine. I, I I continue to think about it to this day. And I know it's available here locally, and I'm going to make the purchase. It's, um, it's so good. It's an incredible Pinot Noir. I asked him about the label on mm-hmm. the wine bottle, and his explanation of that is just beautiful. And it just kind of shows a little snippet of his heart and what he believes and his like karmic thing he's just cool and i was like can i please 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 have you come on our podcast and he said sure and i gave him my business card and we'll see what happens yeah we'll give him a call so (laughs) that's why we're being vague about a lot of it and you know who i was really happy to see was peter mandavi because last year i got to go to his 75th anniversary um uh, event at Charles Krug and we drank some 1966 Cabernet mm-hmm. dug into the library and um, and it was it was cool he's such a he's such a nice guy he's just a, a totally cool guy anyway we could name drop yeah, the really rest of cool, the show genuine but, smile. Yeah. okay name drop but how about the wine rep that you knew from before that that guy that was just nuts oh Jim Opaleski from Old Bridge Cellars that guy's hilarious yeah 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 he represents uh, he, a number he, of wines yeah he takes care of the he, he's uh, giant steps is in his portfolio he takes care of the southeastern part of, of the United States and uh, he's very smart when it comes to wine he knows a lot and he and knows that a lot of people and he, he knows, knows a lot yeah he's, he's, he's been around the block He's hilarious. Yeah. He was one of the highlights. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to tell him that. <laughs> well, I hope he listens to the podcast. <laughs> yes. And then sends us an email saying, hey, thanks for saying I was a highlight. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there were parts of him that were just glowing. <laughs> anyway, Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Mannon. To get in touch, check greatminds.org or leave a message on the Great Line, 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening.